Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokhandwala and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Tim Crockford, Manager of Hermes Impact Opportunities Equity Fund. Interest in ethical investing has grown in recent years as awareness of issues such as global warming and corporate governance grow among governments, businesses and private individuals. Not surprisingly, the number of ethical funds has also increased, but perhaps confusingly for investors, so have the number of ethical investment approaches and types of funds. One of the various ethical investment styles is impact investing. Now, Tim, you run a fund via this approach. So what exactly is impact investing? Well, quite simply, um, impact investing is when you look to invest in companies that are having a positive impact on the planet, on people, society and the environment. And at the same time as doing that, these companies are meeting the unmet needs of, uh, of, of mankind. Now... I suppose you could argue that quite a lot of the older established um, ethical funds do this already. So how does impact investing and your fund, which you launched, I believe, in January, differ from older type ethical funds? So if you if you picture a sort of responsible investment continuum, um, I think the first sort of um, ethical investing funds that started to, to hit the scene decades ago were, were SRI funds, and those were very much focused on exclusions so focused mm-hmm. on negative exclusions leaving out sectors leaving out companies that were deemed as you know as as sectors you wouldn't want to invest in or unethical sectors i think the second wave if you like was uh, and more recently was was esg investing which which that's for our purpose of our readers, what does ESG mean? So that's sorry that's um, environmental social and governance yeah. investing and that is Focusing rather than on the products that the company is making, focusing on the operations of the company and ensuring that you're picking companies that have good environmental, social and governance practices. The third wave and most recent wave is is impact investing. And this, again, focuses back to the products and services that the company is making. But it's focused on not excluding, but actually looking for positive change opportunities that are driven by this desire, this mission to make the world a better place. So while you're looking for companies that are selling products, that are selling services, that are having a beneficial effect on society and the environment, in doing this, at the same time, they are addressing like I said, an unmet need, but also, therefore, a potential growth opportunity in the marketplace. So why have you chosen to run the fund via an impact investing approach, let's say, as opposed to an ESG approach or an SRI, socially responsible um, investing approach? Well, Hermes, I mean, Hermes as a, as a company has been involved in this space you know, ever since its inception. And um, we, were, you know, we were founding, uh, drafting signatories on the, uh, the UN PRI, Principles of Responsible Investment. So responsibility is very much at the heart of everything we do. And we do, of course, also run ESG strategies. I think this is certainly the most recent, impact investing is certainly the most recent iteration, as I said. And I think there's a desire now to find 
solutions that meet the needs of our clients who also, yes, they want to be sustainable, but they also want a punch investment return as well. So it's, I think it's the marrying of those two goals up together and finding strategies, or this is a sort of strategy which can hopefully, because of the fact that it's, as I said, these companies are meeting these unmet needs, they can deliver great performance financially as well. You obviously after certain specific types of companies. So how do you go about finding these types of companies and how do you put together this, you know, collection of investment in the fund that meet your criteria? Well, the fund is very much based, as you can imagine, it's it's very much based on thematics. It is essentially also a global thematic fund. So a lot of the source of ideas comes from thematic research. Uh, but of course, as I said to you, we've got you know, big rooting in this space. And so we, of course, also have, you know, over 100 other investment professionals on the floor. So in fact, a lot of the other, uh, a lot of the investment ideas were actually sourced from other teams across Hermes. Um, But typically going forward, because this is a fund which is organised into distinct themes which address the uh, the unmet needs of society as as defined by the the, um, UN Sustainable Development Goals, this is very much going to be a thematic fund and therefore based on thematic research sourced ideas. Okay, so what's the exact process, you know, from idea through to company appearing in the portfolio of uh, the uh, Hermes Impact Opportunities Equity Fund? Well, I think the most unique part of the investment process is actually at the beginning of the process. So when we find through thematic research, when we find an idea of a company which we think meets one of these themes and therefore is having a positive impact, as I said, as defined by the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the first stage of the process is to really understand that impact and you know, and to really decide whether or not it is, in fact, a positive impact company. So what we'll do is we'll understand the nature of that impact. So i.e. is this is the nature of the impact being delivered through the products and services that the company is selling or is it just through a corporate social responsibility program which is run adjacent to what the company is selling the latter case it's great don't get me wrong we don't want to discourage that but for the purpose of this investment strategy it wouldn't qualify as as a, a potential investment for the fund the next stage then would be to understand what we call the intentionality So understand how much of those revenues come from this positive impact product or service. What we, of course, don't want to do is include companies who have a very small percentage of their sales or their earnings coming from these positive impacts. I think we're very clear from the beginning that we wanted to keep the integrity of this product very high and therefore... We don't want, you know, a company, for example, which is generating power from coal and, you know, um, carbon emitting sources to go and buy a single wind farm and therefore become applicable for this investment strategy. So it's really about understanding how much today is sourced from these positive impact products and services and how much the company intends to drive from the future. And then finally, the other thing we will, or the other two things actually we will look at is firstly, the additionality that the company is having. So... I used the term before, meeting the unmet needs of society. So essentially what we're looking for is companies that are doing something that if that company wasn't providing that product or service, no one otherwise would be, or very few people otherwise would be able to provide that product or service. The aim here is to focus on companies that, you know, may, maybe have a, an element of, um, of research and development driving their process, but not solely. You know, this also includes companies like microfinance lenders, for example, who are indeed 
business model wise just the same as any other bank but the way they've tro- chosen to focus their business model is on a very small area of society which has otherwise been unbanked and otherwise been underserved by the by the wider banking industry uh, and of course finally we're looking at the negatives it's very important it's very important to emphasize that even though these are brilliant mission driven companies none of these companies are going to be perfect there are always going to be negative externalities and therefore there are always things that these companies can improve so what we want to do is identify what these negative externalities are and then identify hopefully what we can engage with the company to work on on an ongoing process to improve and increase their net positive impact i mean to what extent do you engage in companies and why do you feel that this is a you know an important part of um the investment approach well i think with an impact strategy particularly an impact strategy in public equity markets as opposed to private markets i think engagement is really the only true form of impact investing you can have because like i said to you you need to show your investors you need to show your customers that their money is not just going to positive sources but also helping to increase the net positive impact of these companies and therefore what we what we want to do is we're not trying to turn bad companies into good companies these are as i said largely fantastic mission driven companies but our our own additionality if you like to our customers uh, to our investors is to be able to show that actually through engaging with these companies we've increased the net positive impact or we're trying to increase the net positive impact that they have over time you also run um as with a conventional equities fund hermes europe x uk equity how does the different what what's the difference um between the way you pick shares for the conventional equities fund and the ethical fund um not much to be honest i, I mean the my personal approach as a fund manager has always been driven around midcaps largely and thematic midcaps in particular so both of these funds play to my own sort of skill set if you like um so the style with which we choose which we which we find the ideas is very much the same the way i always explain it if you imagine a matrix whereby on one side one axis of the matrix you have um you know geographical scope and the other side you have thematic scope you've got the hermes impact opportunities fund which is obviously a global fund and therefore unlimited in terms of geographical scope but very much defined in terms of the specific themes that it's looking to invest in whereas on the other side of things you've got the Hermes Europe XUK fund which is obviously limited in terms of its geographical scope to continental europe but of course in terms of the themes that are that are that are invested in through the fund the scope is is somewhat unlimited in terms of it's free to go wherever it likes Okay now you mentioned um you have a, a preference of midcaps and um I was having a look at the asset allocation and I could see you have what roughly about 50% of the ethical fund in midcaps so is this going to make it much more volatile than you know many of its peers in the investment association global fund sector I think that really depends on how you look at volatility um I think 
the one thing you know, this this is a, a fairly focused fund. It's got twenty eight names in it currently, and it's measured against a global one of the most broad global indices benchmarks that we could find. So if you're looking at relative volatility, of course, with a fund of that nature where you have such a focused approach, there are going to be times when it it runs very far ahead or behind on any single day basis versus the benchmark. But I think what you find in times like we're having now, where you you find absolute volatility in the markets and uh, you know of course huge amounts of uncertainty with regards to geopolitics with regards to the macroeconomic cycle i think what you find is that the because the fund is so focused on looking for companies that are emerging growth names so these are growth names but not the traditional quality growth names they are the growth names of the future if you like I think what you find is that in times of negativity, these companies typically will eventually outperform because the relative growth versus the market actually widens when people become more, when the market becomes more negative about global growth prospects in general. So actually, I think it actually fares very well in volatile times and it has been performing very well this year as a result, partly of that, but mainly due to stock pickings. And that's what we hope to see going forward. Turning to the holdings, what would be examples of um, some of the things you investors fund in? So it's, as I said to you, it's built around eight themes and these themes tie back to the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. So these are, the goals themselves range from a, a lot of things and what we've had to do is focus these these uh, these 17 goals into essentially into these eight themes to make the to make picking ideas and finding ideas more efficient and so these themes range from things like future um, future mobility so looking at companies that are exposed to the electric vehicles and hybrid space we're looking at companies that are, are helping the world develop in terms of health and well-being so we're, we we look at a lot of names that are enabling the biotech revolution and the genetic therapy revolution that we expect to see play out over the next decade. And we, of course, invest in all other things like microfinance, that will be financial inclusion, education, which is very much focused on education in developing markets. So there's a quite an eclectic, diverse range of companies, albeit fairly focused in terms of the, the number of holdings they are. And the one How many holdings do you have? So 28 names, yeah. there are 28 so names in total. fairly concentrated. Fairly... Do you think it'll grow in time? Or... I think that's exactly yeah. right. I think, I think what we'll see is, going back to the approach I described to you earlier on with which we used to uh, mm. to find to define whether a company is a positive impact company. I think what you'll see over time is that more and more companies start to realize there there are huge huge opportunities in this space and therefore they change their business models to be more focused on positive impact products and services. And I'll give you an example. So one of the holdings in the fund is a company called Valio, which is a, a French listed auto parts provider. And back in 2012, if you looked at the at where this company derived its revenue from, there was about a quarter of their revenue was from products or services that helped cars, helped car makers, automakers reduce their CO2 emissions. And the company realized at the time that this was, apart from being, of course, a great area to be in from a you know sustainable point of view, this was also a huge opportunity. And over time, committed towards moving and changing that business mix to focus more on this area. And in fact, now, if you look at where it derives its revenue from, over almost 80% of the business's revenue comes from 
parts that either go into cars to reduce their CO2 emissions or indeed straight into hybrid and electric vehicles. So this is a perfect opportunity of a company that might not have been in the universe a few years back, but over time has committed towards making its, its deriving more of its revenue from these sustainable sources because of the huge opportunity. And therefore, when a company decides to do that, it would instantly fall into our investment universe. So we need to see what well, we want to see more companies to commit to do this because to take these opportunities, because not only, as I said, are they you know, better for the world and sustainability, but they're also fantastic business opportunities, typically. Would it be fair to say you're not necessarily looking for people who are 100% squeaky clean, but you will reward people who improve their act kind of thing? Or I think that they're, yeah. they're 100% squeaky they're nothing. As I said to you before, nothing mm. is 100% squeaky clean. So, mm. I mean, this company I mentioned uh, to you, Valio, for example, it, of course, a lot of these parts that it makes are made out of things like steel and aluminium. Therefore, implicit in the production process, the inputs, if you like, of their production process are going to have CO2 emissions associated with them. So what we're engaging with them to try and do is reduce those CO2 emissions, reduce the emissions from their inputs, not just their outputs, and therefore have a, uh, you know, become eventually a zero emissions company. So that's a perfect example of, of what sort of encapsulates our progress. I wouldn't say that makes it not a squeaky clean company, mm. but as I said to you, nothing is, mm. no company is ever going to be. But typically... All of the companies we're looking for are already going to be selling, to some extent, these products and services that are having the positive impacts. What we won't do is exclude them if they fall below a certain threshold, as long as the company has already committed towards driving them up. So once the company in 2012 committed towards increasing the amount of revenue it it, it sourced from positive impact products in this case, um, then it would instantly become part of the investment universe that we look at. Um, You said that obviously impact investing differs from some of the more established forms and that you're not necessarily looking to make big exclusions. That said, are there any sectors or types of companies you would absolutely not have in the fund? Um, There's nothing explicit because by nature of the investment process, it's almost implicit that you're, you're not going to invest in sectors which would be very obviously considered to be negative sectors. What will be examples? Then? Uh, I mean, that's obviously to the discretion of investors. So I think that's the, the other thing with ethical investing. Everyone has a different view of good ethics. It's a very subjective thing. So trying to define whether, for example, an oil and gas company should be included or excluded from a an ethical exclusion-based portfolio is very difficult. This is not a decision we have to make when it comes to impact investing because regardless of whether you would consider that to be ethically okay or not, you couldn't argue that an oil and gas company that was focused solely on the, you know, from traditional oil extraction, you couldn't argue that they would be a positive impact product or service because the SDGs will clearly lead you towards or clearly lead you away from that sort of sector. So there's no explicit exclusions, but almost implicit from the process because we're focused so much on trying to find these companies that really are meeting the unmet needs of tomorrow, then those companies, the type of companies you would typically see being excluded from an exclusion-based strategy would almost automatically marry up. Obviously, this fund, or you're not specifically excluding, but 
maybe you have a narrower universe than conventional funds. So can ethical funds, including ones like this one, do you think they can match or outperform the returns of conventional equities funds? I would very much hope so. That's uh, that's what we're, we're, we're planning to do. And that's the whole reason why what we've done is rather than select a, a benchmark to measure our performance against, which is niche, which is focused on only sustainable companies, we've, we've measured ourselves against the most broad or one of the most broad benchmarks that we can possibly find. And um, which is that? Which is the MSCI Acqui, um IMI, which is you know I think it's got over eight thousand five hundred companies, mm. developed markets, emer- um, emerging markets, or market cap. So it is really one of the most broad indices we could uh, we could possibly measure ourselves against. And and the whole premise of that is what we are saying with this product is not just do you have a collection of companies in a portfolio that are doing better for society, that are doing better for the environment. Mm. But because of that, purely because of that reason, because these areas are by definition growth, emerging growth areas, what we expect to see is that this outperforms um, over a long period of time. And is this the first time you've run an ethical fund or do you have experience in this field from previous rules? So everyone in Hermes has experience in this field because all of our funds include some sort of certainly ESG um, analysis in the process, obviously to differing extents. So even the funds such as the the EuropeX UK product Mm -hmm. that I run, which aren't ESG focused funds, we're all ESG aware and therefore understanding the environmental, social and governance benefits and risks and scoring of every company we look at is very much a part of everyone's investment process. So this is almost a natural extension of that. And of course, it's the natural extension of, you know, my my, my own personal style as a fund manager, given that it is focused on mid-cap thematic investing, which is where I've sort of built my, my, my sort of uh, you know, area or my expertise in. And I mean, is there any overlap between your Europe fund and this ethical fund in terms of the holdings? There is indeed. So, so mm. almost uh, all of the names um, that fall within the cap range and are listed in Europe um, that are in the uh, in the Hermes Impact Opportunities Fund are also in the Hermes Europe X UK fund. Okay, so does this mean the ethical fund is a bias to Europe, or, or where do you find sort of globally? Where do you find the sort of good opportunities for impact investing? That's I think that's a very interesting and important question because actually if you look at the fund in terms of where the companies are listed what you'll find is that the majority of companies are actually listed in developed markets but actually if you look at the fund in terms of where the revenue is generated from the majority of the revenue comes from um, developing markets so it's it's i think that the interesting thing there is that, that that's fairly intuitive once you go back and think about what I said about the process. So as I said to you, all these companies, apart from selling positive impact products and services, they also must bring with them an an element of additionality. So an element of being able to meet this need that no one else is doing. And typically, of course, things like R&D, research and development, have been more advanced in many of the uh, developed market sectors and areas, of course. So I think it's fairly intuitive that you'll find companies that are a small bias versus the benchmark towards companies that are listed in in uh, developed markets, but of course, 
it's all about the focus of where the impact is being had. And the majority of times that is going to be actually in emerging markets. Thank you, Tim. A really interesting insight into the world of impact investing. Passive funds, such as exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, can be an easy way to build up core exposures to major markets or get the returns of markets where active managers fail to beat. But despite the funds themselves being passive, you can in fact use them in a very active and potentially profitable way. Taha, can you explain how? Absolutely. Hi, Leonora. Um, so when you say in a more active way, what this means is you're, you're making slightly more shorter term decisions with these passive and active funds because sometimes there are there is a right market for an active fund and there is the right market for a passive fund. And what this means is that whatever is driving the, the kind of market, whether it's macroeconomics or whether it's certain sectors, it changes the dynamics of the market and some things suit passive funds and some things suit active funds. So what would be an example of this? Uh, there are a few things you can do. So you can either try and pick up on a sector or you can you know, shift the market into active and passive, as I, as I just explained. But an example would be if you look at some of the annual returns in the last few years. So in 2015, the FTSE 100 actually fell uh, by 1%. But active managers, uh, on average, the average fund in the IA UK or company sector returned 5%. So obviously you can see there that that was a market that benefited active managers. The flip side of that, if you look at 2016, that's when we had the EU referendum and we had the, the miners kind of coming back in from February. What happened there was is that active managers tend to be underweight miners and they tend to be overweight mid-caps, whereas the index itself is, you know, it's balanced on mid-caps, but obviously weighted towards large large cap funds and it has a lot of miners. So in that situation, the FTSE 100 returned 19% and the average fund only returned 11%. So again, you can see that in that situation, you'd have been better off in a passive fund. And this kind of it kind of comes into the bull and bear markets as well. So if you look at like a, a long the, the managers that we know, the star managers that have long term records. Let's take Neil Woodford for example. You don't get a much bigger star. No, absolutely. You know, he's you know he's as close to his household name as we get. Uh, his his recent woes aside, if you look at his long term record over twenty years, he's he's no he's performed massively above the FTSE all share. But when you when you look when you break this down, what you see is that this is actually more about him being defensive in the kind of bear markets of two thousand and two thousand and eight, and this was because he took a position against being in tech and being in banks respectively, whereas the index was obviously weighted to these as as it would have been at the time. So in that situation, in defensive and bear markets, you're probably better off being in an active fund. That sounds like a, a really good way to go about. So how would you sort of implement this kind of strategy? As I said, these are these are short term things. Um, so one example, I was speaking to a, uh, a wealth manager called Thomas Miller Investments, and they did something quite interesting in the early part of this year. So when the FTSE 100, which had a pretty tough start, so it was quite volatile at the start of the year. And by March 25th, 26th, it actually reached quite a big low. I think it's lowest point since December 2016. But if you look, if you look at where that where that kind of bearish sentiment was coming from, it was from the big quality large caps that dominate the FTSE 100, a space where active managers are underweight. So up until that point, they would have outperformed the index. But if you think that there was a valuation point which Thomas Miller Investments did, the valuation point where these had been hit too hard, what they did was is, is they swapped from active to passive and then rode that for two months, and the passive product outperformed the active products that they switched out from for the next two months. So short term move. Quite intuitive, but also a good valuation move. Okay, I mean, that sounds really clever and very profitable. So um, is this a, a good way for all investors to proceed? 
Uh, definitely not all. So obviously you have to you have to understand the fundamentals of the market and also the fundamentals of the active funds you hold. You need to know where they're positioned, what they're positioned for. You also need to know what's going to drive the market because if you if you don't have a good understanding of all these things, then you're probably going to end up making the wrong decision. You know, these are difficult difficult things to call, and you need to do the groundwork. It's also um, you have to think about trading costs. Obviously, this was a short term move. Right, that is um, quite pertinent. And if you do it in yeah. an ETF. You know, the platforms that most people use, they charge for ETF trades. So if you're only doing a small amount of money, it might not be worth it. If you're doing it via an open-ended fund, then you have to think about the time lag. You know, these are short-term moves. Those, they sometimes take four days to trade. So. so ultimately, maybe, you know, if you're a big institution, sort of like bulk trading, fine. If you're like you and me, you're going to rack up a load of trading costs. So probably not so good. What would be alternative approaches let's say for uh, those of us uh, who don't have millions of pounds to move around so the one one way you can do but still be active in your active and passive allocation is to do this in terms of the markets as we talked about earlier um so if it's a bullish market where macro sentiment is really high and that's what drives the market that's what and that's what's driving the market forward then you're probably better off being in a passive because in that situation, the stock correlations are quite high and it's not the fundamentals of each company that is driving returns, but it's just the really positive sentiment on the market itself. The flip side is also true, um, as pointed out by Neil Woodford's kind of, you know, defensive moves that he made. In a bear market, when sentiment is low, and it's again, it's not stock fundamentals that's driving the price lower, it's negative sentiment, good companies will outperform bad companies and the and the market and active managers are better at picking good companies than obviously in indexes. Thank you Taha some really helpful tips on how to use passive funds. Years of money printing and purchasing by central banks has pushed up the prices of bonds meaning their yields are unattractively low. And with interest rates on the rise in the US bond prices might now fall resulting in capital losses for their investors. So no surprise that many investors are giving the fixed income market a wide berth. But Emma, some investment professionals still argue that investors shouldn't completely abandon bonds. Why? The main reason really comes down to bonds' ability to diversify from equities. Um, some analysts I spoke to said, OK, oh, there are some issues with the bond market right now, but you don't totally want to not hold bonds because you do need some diversification away from equities. The other point that I heard was that actually the monetary policy environment that has kept bond yields very low so far could actually have further to go. And that's just because there is so much debt um, around the world, both on government balance sheets, corporates and individuals. The level of debt is actually higher now than it was before going into the global financial crisis. So one manager I spoke to, Jim Leavis, who runs the M&G Global Macro Bond Fund, thinks that actually this could put a cap on the amount of rates that central banks are able to raise. And that means that it's going to be still relatively attractive to keep holding bonds. Then the other thing that I heard is that of all there are areas, as we've talked about, that are very low yielding, such as UK government bonds, there are still areas of the bond market that could offer areas of, of value. So that's something investors need to pay attention to too. So which areas of the bond market still offer value then? Well, managers I spoke to at 24 Asset Management, which is a specialist fixed income um, fund house, they liked UK corporate bonds. And the reason is because they say that because of the uncertainty surrounding the economic picture with Brexit on the horizon and such, 
um, you can actually get higher yields for holding UK corporate bonds than you can in other markets. And they think that though obviously there is a risk from the whole Brexit situation and they think that it could have a sort of negative effect on how much companies are able to earn, they don't think it's going to cause any sort of major increase in defaulting on loans, So, which is the main risk if you're you know, a bond investor. So they think that actually the risk reward here is quite interesting. Another area they like are European financials which investors have been wary about since the financial crisis because they're obviously <laughs> key to those. Um, but these are companies that are now much better capitalised and a lot of the regulation that's come in since the crisis um, has arguably, arguably made them stronger. And another area that 24 Asset Management liked are shorter duration bonds, um, which they think could also be very attractive for the current environment. What are shorter duration bonds and why are they attractive? So basically, these are bonds that don't have that long to go until they mature. So that means they're less sensitive to interest rate risk, because generally, the longer duration a bond has, the more sensitive it is to interest rate rises. So by conversely, if you hold a shorter duration bond, the less likely it is going to be affected that if interest rates rise. Now, these areas of the bond market sound very attractive, but presumably they aren't risk-free either? Definitely not. No, unfortunately, there are still lots of risks surrounding um, the bond market. And the main thing with bonds are rising interest rates and increased inflation, which basically could cause central banks to raise rates. And the reason why um, rising interest rates are bad news for bonds is because when um, interest rate rises, bonds need to adjust to reflect this. And so what happens is that their yields rise which means that their prices come down. But if prices come down, investors who've bought bonds, um, you know, when they were at a different price, can end up making a capital loss, which is obviously not what an investor wants to do. But if you want to get exposure to these um, better value type of bonds that you were describing before, how can you go about doing that? I think the best way to get exposure to the areas of value that are still around is probably to go for strategic bond funds. And basically, these are funds that the managers can invest all across the universe of fixed income assets. So they can select the best opportunities, but as we're saying, also avoid the problem areas, which could be quite a big issue. So yes, I think strategic bond funds are a good way to go. Are they um, suitable for all kinds of investors? No, you know, unfortunately, as as in the case of investment, nothing fits everybody. So these funds are often invested in higher risk areas, such as high yield bonds and emerging market debt. And because these are by their nature high risk, they might not be suitable for investors um, with more cautious risk appetites. Also, the thing about these funds is that the managers can move around the bond universe very quickly. And that could mean that the risk profile changes. So you might actually go into thinking, oh, I can handle this level of risk, but suddenly the situation changes and the manager gets into higher risk assets, which might not be very suitable for you. So for people who can take on these risks, which strategic bond funds look like good options? I'd say um, Gamstar Credit Opportunities. It tends to invest in high quality investment grade bonds. And most of these assets um, that invest in have a yield of 6% or more. And that gives it quite good protection against the risk of interest rate rising. This fund has a yield of 4.6%. And over five years, it's made a return of 55%. And it's got a charge of 1.18%. 
Um, another good fund in this area is 24 Dynamic Bond Fund. It has lots invested in asset-backed securities. These are basically bonds um, which are backed by various financial assets. Often these have floating rate coupons attached to them. And that means that unlike you know fixed rate bonds, floating rate bonds, if interest rate rises, their sort of coupons also rise to reflect that. And 24 Dynamic Bond Fund has a yield at the moment of 4.9%, and it's made 31% over the five years. It's also got quite a reasonable fee of 0.77%. Thank you, Emma. And see this week's big theme in the fund section for her full list of strategic bond fund suggestions. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read more on passive funds, asset allocation and bonds in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.